Hey, you're listening to the Grace Auburn Church Podcast. In this week's sermon, Pastor Matt Dean preaches from John 1.15 through John 3.17 in our sermon series, Jesus, the Glory of Grace and Truth. Tonight we are in week three of our series, Jesus, the Glory of Grace and Truth. And the idea of this series is we walk through the Gospel of John that we we observe not only what the miracles of Jesus looked like, but on a, also what, what is it that John was trying to help us see about Jesus. And so I'll give you an example. When it was that Jesus helped the blind man see, it was not just that this man needed to see, but he's the light of the world. When Jesus feeds 5,000 people, it's not just that 5,000 people were hungry on a hillside, but Jesus was saying, I am the bread of life. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. It was not just that Lazarus' family was grieving at the loss of this man, but Jesus was also showing, I am the resurrection and the life. And so as we look in the gospel of John, it's not only important that we see what it is that Jesus says and does, but what is it that John is helping us understand about the wonderful person of Jesus and what is it that he wants us to to know. Uh, we, we landed last week on John 1.14 that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, uh, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And tonight we pick up in John chapter 1, starting in verse 15, and we're going to walk through the first part of John 1, and then we're going to settle into these snapshot scenes where Jesus begins to perform miracles. But first, he begins to call people. Before he calls people, John must prepare the way for him. So we're going to pick up in John chapter 1, verse 15. It says, John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Verse 16, From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing, one after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Now, verse 19, it says, Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. And John did not fail to confess, it says, but he confessed freely. And listen to John's words. I am not the Christ. Now, we, we read Christ, but in this moment, he's saying, I am not the Messiah, the promised one, the one that generations and decades have been waiting for. John freely says, it's not me. I'm not him. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. And then puzzled, they say, well, then who are you? Are you Elijah? John the Baptist says, I am not. Are you the prophet? No. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. Who do you say about yourself? What is it that you say about yourself? Verse 23, John replied in the words of Isaiah, the prophet who who also spoke to the coming of this Savior, Jesus. But John says, I am the voice of the one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. And he is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now, just a little cultural insight for you. In this region of Judea, 
there was a group of people called the Essenes. And you can write this down if you want to look it up more. E-S-S-E-N-E-S. And they were people that ritualistically baptized people. And so throughout this geography, you can see these baptismal pools where ritual cleansing would take place. This was not unique to John, but John was known to be someone who baptized. But what became unique about John is that John said, prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Messiah. Prepare the way of the Christ. And that's where it begins to take on something quite different than cultural baptisms that were happening in this region at the specific time. This all happened at Bethany, verse 28, on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptized. Now, we, we read this in Scripture, and I want you to know, I, I stood on the other side of Bethany several months ago, and, and in many ways it was kind of underwhelming because it's like, wait, that's where this was happening? It's like, that's where this was happening. And this is what I want you to hear. God breaks through into humankind in fairly underwhelming places. He's not underwhelming, but this geography where this was happening was just kind of ordinary land, just, just kind of an ordinary place, but there was nothing ordinary about Jesus. I love this next part. Verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John says, this is the one I meant when I said, quote, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Verse 32, then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, quote, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is what you need to so clearly see. John's word says, I have seen, physically seen, and I testify, this is the Son of God. Now, we may read that in black and white and go, okay, great, but John is saying in the original language, with my own very eyes, I have seen and testify, this is the Son of God, which what that means for you is, this is what he wants us to know about Jesus the Son of God. His testimony is sure. He has seen it with his eyes. Therefore, you can trust what you are hearing. And this should bolster your faith that this is not just a story. This is history. And he is saying, I have physically seen with my eyes, this is the Son of God. Verse 35, the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he says, look, the Lamb of God, exclamation mark. Look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus and turning around, Jesus saw them following and said, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which is a term of respect, a term of endearment, a term of cultural humility. They're saying, you are clearly a teacher. And they say, Rabbi, teacher, what is it that you are, where are you staying? And Jesus says, come and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and they spent the day with him. It was about the 10th hour. And Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. Now, don't let this fact get lost on you. They have been waiting for generations and generations and generations and generations. The silence between Malachi and Matthew in the Bible was 400 years. This is not just, oh, we found the Messiah. No, it's like, 
you are the one we've been waiting for. We have found the Messiah, the Christ. This is no small matter. This is huge, life-changing, earth-altering statement. We have found the Messiah. That is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which translated is Peter. And it would be Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God that Jesus says he would build this church upon. And we talked about that earlier this year. Verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee and finding Philip, he said to him, simply follow me. And Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. And Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. The next remark is funny. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathaniel said, as though this was like this lower class destination. He was absolutely shocked that this is where the Messiah, the one they've been waiting for him, would be coming from. Come and see, Philip says. When Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me, Nathaniel asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. And Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, I love this, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. This is no small statement. Verse 50, Jesus says, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, this is the story of how the earliest disciples began to follow him. And John was setting all of this up so that we begin to see in chapter 2 and halfway through chapter 3 one very clear message of what Jesus does, not only in terms of miracle and responses, but what he has to say, that he is, in fact, the Savior of the world. So we pick up in John chapter 2. And it says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. And just for you to understand the context of this, this was Galilee, Cana specifically. This is like a neighborhood, okay? This is, this is not this bustling metropolis. This is just an ordinary place, just an ordinary place, an ordinary couple at an ordinary wedding. And there's nothing really ordinary about these Jewish weddings, but this was a multiple-day feast and celebration. And this time, the groom and bride would not go away on a honeymoon. They would stay at home and host people for a week. This was a celebration of this coming together. And so just in a very ordinary place, Cana in Galilee, there is a wedding. And Jesus' mother, it says, was there. So we know she had some sort of role to play, but we don't know what role she played other than that says Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So these men that Jesus just said, follow me, they're coming with Jesus to Cana, this ordinary town where there's a wedding. And then this next line is interesting. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, let me give you the cultural parallel of this. This would be like saying, come over and watch a football game. By the way, I don't have a television, right? Someone texted me this afternoon. This is like a southerner having people over with salad, and there's no salad dressing, right? This is, this is a major deal in which this couple that got married there was uh, one commentator said, egg on their face. Like this is a cultural no-no, not because drunkenness was suggested, but because according to old rabbinic sayings, what rabbis would say is, 
Where there is no wine, there is no joy. So wine was integral to the celebration of this thing. And it wasn't just a glass of wine. There were these jars with 20 and 30 gallons of wine that would be spread out among all the guests for days and days and days and days and days. This was a celebration. And when Jesus' mother says, they have no more wine, Jesus' response is very interesting in English. The NIV says, dear woman, why do you involve me? Now, the reason we read NIV in this service is because for our friends from other nations where English is their second language, this just reads easily. So that's why we do the NIV here. But there are better translations when it comes to accurate words, but there is no real good word in English for this next sentence. I mean, to say, dear woman, why do you involve me? It's like, what, what, what? You know, dear woman, why do you involve me? The ladies in the room, they're like, Seriously, that's what Jesus said, and, and what he says in the original language is lady. But we hear lady in English, and we're like, what? Lady? But it's a term of endearment. In a non-biblical literature, this was what a husband would lovingly refer to his wife in this language and culture. So this is not a term of woman, dear woman, you know, or lady, dear lady. This, this is really a term of respect and endearment, and Jesus is saying to his mother, I got this. Now, we read in English, dear woman, why do you involve me? And, and we just miss the whole meaning. It, a, a more appropriate answer would be, dear lady, I can handle this situation. And then he says, my time has not yet come. Now, here's what Tim Keller says about this moment. When he says, my hour has not yet come, Tim Keller says, he makes a remark that this is a reference to the cross, that Jesus was not ready yet to turn our sorrow into triumph, over death, the miracle showed what he would do, and it's no coincidence that the wine went into the jars of purification. Let's, let's see what happens next. He says, dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come, but his mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Now, here's what you need to know. I've, I've seen these in real life. They're about this tall, this round. And for Jews in this moment, when they would enter into a house, they would wash their feet because they would be wearing sandals and the streets would be covered with dirt, dust, and or mud. Okay. And before the meal, they would wash their hands. But here is between every course of the meal, they would wash their hands. Why? Because to fail to do so would mean they're unclean. So these purification jars of water were placed in order that people could be clean to be with one another. Now think that through on a larger perspective. Where else would Jesus have put the wine? For by his wounds we have been set free. So here is Jesus and he says, now draw, fill the jars with water to the servants. He filled them to the brim and then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. They knew that Jesus somehow wine, and it, it was wine, like Napa Sonoma wine. It was the good stuff. And he said, everyone who brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you, you have saved the best until now. And this is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. And he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Listen, when he turned water into wine, he was showing what he would do. 
in an ordinary town at an ordinary wedding, he made a way for joy to be possible. And in the same place that purification took place, he would turn that into wine. On the night he was betrayed, after giving thanks, he took a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant poured out in my blood. And they would remember that moment later on. Just to, uh, to add some levity to the moment, I want to show you a picture of, like, this is, this, is, this is Cana, okay, in Galilee, and this is a store called Fill the Jars with Water, Cana Wedding Wine. And you can call right now if you've got WhatsApp, you can WhatsApp them right now, and you can order some Cana Wedding Wine. This is literally open, it'll be open for business in a few hours right now, but this is near the place where Jesus performed this miracle in Israel. And I just want you to see this is not like made up. Like I took the shot. I stood on the street. I said, oh, that's funny. So this is kind of where it is. And nearby there's a church that's built on the site where Jesus turned the water into wine. So as you read the Bible, like I just want you to see like this is not, this is real. This is true. These things are happening. This miracle would point to what Jesus would do. Verse 12, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and there they stayed for a few days. Now, we read that in 2, verse 12, and we go, oh, sweet. They went down, they walked somewhere, but that was a long journey, just, just to there. And then the next line says, and when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And you're thinking with these guys and with his mom, they're walking here, they take a break, and then they walk back up to Jerusalem. This is like, this is some, some miles being logged on the foot you know, as they walk back and forth, back and forth. But when it says in the Bible, Jesus went up to Jerusalem, it literally means Jesus walked up to Jerusalem because the topography is that Jerusalem is up on high. And where do you think he said a city on a hill cannot be hidden? So as we, as we read the Bible and we see the details of geography, we begin to take on a whole new meaning. It says in verse 14, In the temple courts he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. If you want to know why that's in, in there, you can go back and read Leviticus. And in the Levitical code of sacrifice, there was a way, an offering system was put into place so that people could be right with God through sacrifices. Verse 15, so he made a whip out of cords and drove all the, out of the temple area, both sheep and cattle, and he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? One of the things that was happening in this moment, just so you know, that angered Jesus is there was an injustice occurring. There were people profiting off the exchange of money. There were faithful pilgrims coming to Jerusalem for Passover. And as money was being exchanged, they were making profit almost to the tune of one day's wages on the backs of these people that didn't have much. So there was great injustice in addition to the chaos of what was going on in the temple. And so very much so, Jesus was angry because he saw chaos that was surrounding this sacrificial system. And he saw injustice occurring with people. He says, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Verse 18, then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this. And Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now this was very, very offensive to the Jews that were listening because their next reply was, what? It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? 
But the temple Jesus was spoken of was his body. Verse 22, and after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And I want you to listen to this next pattern. The disciples believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. It says, now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. And when Jesus was saying, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days, he was pointing to the cross, pointing to the grave, pointing ahead to Easter. And again, I've stood in the place where this happened. This photograph is at the crossroads where the cross was on his back. I just want you to take heart and take courage. This is true. This is real. The next story is where we're going to end tonight. And so if you're, if, you're, if you're tracking along, we're in John chapter 3 now. It says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Now, just for context, in Jerusalem, based on what I have read, there were about 6,000 of these Pharisees. These were the Jews of Jews. These were the people that had all the minutia down. And I read one statistic that said the Pharisees kept 613 official commandments. We think the Ten Commandments are overwhelming. These guys had 613 laws that they self-imposed upon themselves so that they could be seen as righteous in their own eyes. And it gets so specific, it even talks about when can a child say the blessing in regards to the size of an olive. So that's the kind of detail that these people are under. In other words, Nicodemus was not this slacker. He was not this wanderer. He was not in a spiritual crisis. He was not emotionally needy at this point. Nicodemus had his life together in every sense of human behavior. And he was perplexed at what was going on with Jesus. And this Pharisee, this religious elite guy, comes to Jesus at night because he sees that something is different. He says, he comes to Jesus at night. Rabbi, this is verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, but no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with them. I just want to pause for a moment. That statement, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, Listen, a lot of people can ad admit and agree that Jesus was a good teacher. You get that, right? Even people outside of Christianity can with reverence go, yeah, Jesus was a great teacher. Oh, he's a good man. That's not the issue, right? That's not the issue. And even in his question of him saying, we know that you are a teacher who's been sent from God, he's not saying we know you are the Savior who's been sent from God. He's saying we know you are a teacher who's been sent from God. But let me just say, information does not save you, right? A great, a great lesson is not what saves people because it is not a lack of information and a lack of intelligence that's the problem at the heart of man. It's sin. And this is what Nicodemus is trying to ask of Jesus, and Jesus comes back with a very startling answer. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God, unless he is born again. That's his answer. I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And intrigued, Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked, surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth 
to spirit, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. And Jesus begins to describe the Holy Spirit, and he likens it to wind. It says, wherever it blows, it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus says, how can this be? And Jesus turns it right back on him. You are Israel's teacher, Jesus says to Nicodemus. You are the one that knows the letter of the law. And then Jesus says, and you do not understand these things. I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people, you Pharisees, you Jews of Jews, you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. A friend of mine who's a pastor, he says, quote, hardly anyone on earth has a problem with Jesus being a teacher sent from God. He goes on to say, Jesus is not a teacher sent from God. Jesus is God sent from God. Nicodemus can't see it, but God is right in front of him. God is eye to eye with him, and he can't see it because he's only been born once. And that's the indictment about Nicodemus. Another pastor says, if like Nicodemus, you operate in Jesus as teacher mode, you can bend yourself to be a good person, but you don't deal with the source of your sin. But if you operate from Jesus as Savior, you deal with the problem deep within, the source of your sin, the place in your soul where you don't know God. And the question is, have you been born again by God to a new authority, a new basis for righteousness and a new life in the Spirit of God. Now, Jesus says this. He says that everyone believes may have eternal life. And, and this is kind of the burden that I feel on a daily basis as a pastor, is there are a lot of people that can come and sit in a church service, but that no more makes you a believer, right? And C.S. Lewis had these quippy remarks. He's, he, you know, he, he could say, it no more makes you a believer than going to somewhere else makes you something else. You know, so a modern day analogy was going to Starbucks does not make you a cup of coffee. Okay, going into a church service does not make you a born again believer in Jesus Christ. There is a moment that happens where you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. It's true. I repent and I believe. And all of you need to know that you have had that moment. You need to know that it is true of you that you do believe in your heart and you have confessed with your mouth. Listen to this in John three sixteen. We know these words, but listen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Have any of you ever faced fear? Like the fear of if I say what I've actually thought and what I've actually done. 
what I've actually seen, where I've actually gone, will people love me? Right? We all, at some point, as humans, wrestle with a sense of that fear. And I'll tell you what, there is no more freeing act of love than to be able to say in confidence to the one who can hear you, this is who I am. This is what I've done. This is what I've seen. This is what I've said. This is what I did that I never thought I'd do. And here I am. And to be met by the grace of God in that moment is powerful. And if you've never reached that moment, I strongly encourage you to lay your life on the line before a God who loves you and say, you can have all of me. Here's everything I've done. Here's everything I wish I had not done. And you can have it all. And he says, welcome home. Rick Warren, he's a pastor in California, and, and he has a, a way of words that are very, very simple. But he's taken John 3.16, and he's just broken it out. And I just want to read it to you again. I want you to hear the simplicity of this. The verse is, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And this is what Rick Warren says. For God, and then he says, the origin of salvation. For God, the origin of salvation. So loved the motivation of salvation. For God so loved the world, the extent of salvation in the world, that he gave the action of salvation, his only son, the cost of salvation, that whoever the offer of salvation believes in him, the requirement of salvation, shall not perish the hope of salvation, but have eternal life, the promise of salvation. And in the simplicity of that, he is saying Jesus is the origin of salvation, the motivation of salvation, the extent of salvation, the action of salvation, the cost of salvation, the offer of salvation, the requirement of salvation, the hope of salvation, the promise of salvation. Jesus. And I want you to be so familiar with that, that you can articulate that. And I can tell you, 23 years ago, about a mile from here, that was me. I was a student in Auburn, and I was confronted with the reality, do I really believe that what Jesus did on the cross is enough for me? And can I really say that he is everything to me? He's the Lord of my life. And I was asked that question by a dear brother in Christ, and I had to be honest and say, no. He was not everything to me. I had not yielded everything to him. I was not fully leaning on him. And under the weight of my own guilt and sin, I was confronted with the invitation, but he sure could be. And therefore, would you yield your life to Jesus and surrender to what he has for you? And would you turn from the way that you are living? And would you put your eyes on him? And my answer was, yes. Yes, 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 and yes, you can have all of me. This is what I've said, and this is what I've done. This is where I've been, and this is what I wish I hadn't have done. This is all of me. And I'll tell you, grace, my father said this, grace is rarely sufficient in the future, but always sufficient in the moment of your need. It's hard for us to live in the reality of future grace, but I'm telling you, in the moment of your need for the grace of God. It is always and forever sufficient. And let me just say, it's sufficient for you tonight. 
And I encourage you to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. He is the Son of God. So here's my final question. Do you know Jesus as your final authority, the foundation? Do you know Jesus as the foundation of your hope to get into heaven? And do you know Jesus as the one who lives inside of you and is changing you? Do you know that? And if you don't know that, would you like to know that? Peter, the guy that made some really significant mistakes with Jesus along the way. Peter, the disciple that, that acted before he thought, that spoke before he was really considerate. Peter was, in many ways, an idiot, like a lot of us. And this is what I've come to really appreciate about Peter. It was in his own brokenness and foolishness and mistakes, even in his own denial of Jesus at times in his life, that Jesus ultimately showed his faithfulness to Peter, so much so that Peter rested in the grace of God. And listen to what Peter says. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Kept in heaven for you who through faith are being shielded by God's power. If you are discouraged tonight, you are being shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this being shielded by God's power, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These trials have come so that your faith, which is worth more than gold, may be proved genuine and that your faith may result in praise honor, and glory when Jesus is revealed. I love this next line. This is where we end tonight. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Will you pray with me? We're so glad you listened to the Grace Auburn Church podcast. There's so much happening in the life of our church, and we could not be more excited about all that God is doing. For more information about ways that you can connect within the life of our church, go to our website, www.graceauburn.church.